Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle, it's John Lamoureux. All right, this week we have a special two-parter. We are going deep on this track right here, 8675309 from Tommy Two-Tone. This song was huge, it was number four in 1982, but it's still, it's heard all the time. It's the most famous phone number of all time, wouldn't you say? So first up, we get to hear from the writer of this song, Alex Call. Now, Alex was a member of Clover in the late 60s, early 70s. They were sort of a uh, Grateful Dead-ish type band from the Bay Area. They famously, as you may remember, moved to the UK, very much changed directions, befriended uh, Nick Lowe, and became the backing band for Elvis Costello's first album. Uh, From there, Alex had a lot of success in the 80s as a songwriter. He wrote this song He had a hit with Pat Benatar, hits with Huey Lewis and the News, who he befriended in Clover, because he was also in Clover as well. We talk a lot about Huey in here. And so there was some success, but then there's also been a lot of dry periods too. Very up and down. Alex is very forthcoming with uh, the highs and the lows in this conversation. I think it's really interesting. Um, He put out an album last year called Call of the Wild. I'm going to tell you more about that one in our middle section. Uh, He also put out a book called 8675309, The Song That Saved Me. I have not read that book. I probably should have before interviewing him. But um, we talk about that too. So this is a very informative conversation. I have to give a thanks to, again, the mysterious Eddie Tide. I mentioned a couple weeks ago, Eddie Tide, whoever he is, heard the Steve Eddie Rice episode and said, I can put you in contact with the call and Alex call. And I jumped at the opportunity. So thank you, Eddie Tide, once again for making this one happen. I coincidentally was seeing Tommy Two-Tone in concert separately around the same time. And so I thought, well, let's put them both together and hear the complete story. So first up is the writer and next up will be the singer. Very different personalities, I'll tell you that right now. Alex lives part-time in Nashville and part-time in Canada, and when we talked, he was back home in Canada. So I want to start basically with that pivotal moment in Clover's career when you guys moved to London, because as I see it, Clover was sort of, I don't know, you call them maybe a mid-tier, Bay Area hippie kind of band, you know, like a maybe a less distinctive Grateful Dead, something like that. There's some good stuff there, but 
you decide to go to London, and between the 71 album, oh gosh, here I am, I'm blanking all of a sudden on the... Uh, the 49er. 49er. Yes, between 49er and Love on the Wire, you guys become a completely different band, and I'm guessing London did that to you. What do you experience when you go to London that changes you from this sort of hippie-ish Bay Area band to a little more of almost a new new wave power pop sort of outfit? Well, actually, it goes back. You have to go back before London for that oh, change. Really? because Okay. The original band was me and John McPhee, who's, of course, the lead guitar player for the Doobie Brothers ever since 1978, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, our drummer Mitch Howie and bass player John Chambody. And we were the original Clover, and we made two albums for Fantasy. Mr. Moon, he's a powerful man. Holy ocean upon the land. Make men tell their women lies. When he comes over their eyes. I was strolling through the town. That big old moon was a smiling down. I had a bottle in my hand. All that night was looking so grand. I ran into this girl I know. And we talked both soft and low. Then we went out for a ride. 49er was the second one. And they were, you know, formative. You know, we didn't really have a producer, but we had a tremendous following at that time. Good. And, okay. and then after we lost our, after the second album, we had a falling out with Fantasy, and and we were just playing around, and that's when our friend Huey and our friend Sean Hopper joined the band. There were some difficult times for a while, but but we were always moving towards something else because. Um, okay. Though it incorporated the old country rock sort of thing of Clover, it also added Huey's, you know, kind of James Brown sort of thing. And then when we moved to London, yeah, when we moved to London, we ended up being produced by Mutt Langa. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. And Mutt, what's that? Well, that's crazy. I mean, that had to have been one of his first, one of his earliest projects would have been producing you guys. Yeah, it was, I, mean, it was, was I could say, it was the last right? thing he did that didn't go triple platinum. Yeah. <laughs> but Mutt, Mutt was from South Africa, you know, and he was like the number one producer in South Africa. So he came to London with his wife, and they split up, and and so he was on. He was up and coming, and okay. and we were we were aiming towards that kind of pop rock thing anyway. You know, remember we had five singers, True. so um, you know, it kind of took us to that place. Okay, you know, and. We weren't as country rock as the Eagles, and we had different influences because, you know, Huey's on one end of the thing and I'm on the other, uh, musically, you know, music spectrum-wise. So, okay. you know, it turned into what it was, and and McPhee was really honing his guitar skills. I mean, he's always, McPhee's always been one of the best guitar players in the universe, but he okay. was learning a lot of production things, and so so those albums those albums did go very pop, you know, and, yeah. and, and Mutt was really coming from a pop background at that point and heading in towards rock more. Yeah.
shortly after this and now yeah, you Def right and you mentioned the emergence of of Huey is this and you mentioned the Doobie Brothers is this one of those situations where is Huey sort of the Michael McDonald of, of Clover does he sort of come in unassumingly but then his you know he's got talent his talent and abilities begin to sort of overwhelm anything everything and for a moment that's a good thing and then maybe the Tom Johnstons of the world start to get a little Restless because they see some of the power being ceded to this younger. No, it really Is actually it wasn't like in Clover. Okay. No, it was. I don't think it was really like that. Okay. You know, Huey had a lot of charisma. He was just learning how to sing. You know, he really when he went out and did his own thing, he really turned up his chops a lot. Yeah. You know, I was the lead singer, and uh, we, you know, we did a lot of ensemble singing. But you know what Huey brought was you know stage energy. And he's a great harmonica player. So he and McPhee did a lot of, you know, guitar and harmonica stuff that was really pretty innovative. But I don't think it was, I don't think it was like that. It was just that when the band broke up, you know, it was obviously Huey wanted to have his own thing. And I kind of wanted to have, I wanted to have my own thing. He got there oh, and I did. didn't. <laughs> okay, yeah. Because um, yeah. that's what I was curious about. You, you know, he goes on to form the news and he brings Sean with him. Was there ever a potentially was it ever was there ever potential of you joining the news too, or was he really off on his own and that was? Okay? I Huey said that there was a moment when they considered that, but you know he figured that I would want you know I'm the lead singer and he was going to be the lead singer in his new oh, band, no doubt. Yeah, yeah, exactly. and he got oh, his band was largely another band called Soundhole, mm-hmm. great band from Marin County, but they were all about five years younger than oh. he was. Like in our band, we were a real democracy, right? Because three of us had been, had had a couple record deals already, had record deals already before Huey had. We we kind of, you know, Huey didn't have more of a vote than we did. What was great about Huey, and it worked for him in the end, was Huey always had, he always had a plan. Like, okay, we'll wear this, and, you know, we'll do these dance steps, you know? Yeah, I wasn't. You know, most of us really weren't into that, but we went along with it, and we, you know, we had some, you know, we had some unusual clothing experiments um, <laughs> over the years, like berets and green shirts and stuff. I mean, you know, sure. <laughs> I mean, it finally worked for him because after we went to England, you know, like in England, nobody picked up on England more than Huey did. Oh, really? Okay. On, on oh. the you know the ties and the short hair and the yeah. and the wearing you know thrift store suits and stuff you know and yeah. he came back and did that and made Huey Lewis and the News into a pop band but with that English look. I hadn't thought about connecting those dots, but you're right. Um, wow, yeah. good to know. Now I'm, before we get too far down the hill, the Huey Trail, we got to talk about yeah. being basically Elvis's backup band for My Aim Is True. Do you know what right. Nick Lowe? Because that was that happened by way of Nick Lowe, correct? Do you know what Nick 
saw well, it was, you, you know, we were managed by Dick Riviera and, and Dave Robinson of Stiff Records. Oh, sure, sure. And uh, they were the ones who, who brought us to England because of Nick. You know, because Nick's old band, Brinsley Schwartz, used to do the old Clover songs. Oh. My old, yeah. Really? So Brinsley Schwartz was, was the, became Graham Parker and the Rumor. I love, oh, yeah, I love Graham Parker. Sure. <laughs> yeah, so the Rumor was Brinsley Schwartz band, minus oh, Nick Lowe. That's right, that's right. Yeah, I so we had all these that. connections with him. Nick, we met Nick in, like, 1975 in at the Palomino in L.A., and one thing led to another, and we had, that's why we ended up going to England. Mm. But Nick was a fan of Clover from before the Huey era. That's crazy. I mean, not I don't I'm not I don't mean that as a criticism of you. They just the styles don't seem to gel. I wouldn't listen to those early Clover albums and think stiff records. You know what I mean? No, but but if you listen to the Brinsley Schwartz band records, good point. They actually yeah. did some of our. Yeah, yeah very good point. There, yeah, you could right. you can YouTube them. You know, there, you know, Love is Gone, they have a video of that for sure. Nick was became our buddy, right? And he was our liaison. He was, you know, our guide to English culture, which mostly meant going to pubs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> of course, <laughs> right. and learning a lot of very colorful language. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, Nick's the greatest. You know, the Godfather of cool, Absolutely. and uh, Jesus of cool, the Jesus mm-hmm. of cool. And Jesus of cool. So when and Elvis was a young stiff artist you know, to, in, in waiting, kind of. Yeah. And Elvis also knew about the old Clover. Because Elvis is a real music file. You know, he knows mm-hmm. everything. So anyway, so even though it was uh, stylistically, or, or it's not, not stylistically, but they didn't want the Clover thing to be kind of known because it was so not punk, okay? Mm-hmm. You know, Clover was so not punk. Mm-hmm. But Nick took the guys in, minus me and Huey, and, you know, they made that album in, like, three sessions. You know, so you personally did studio. not play on My Aim is True. Huey and I did not play on it. I thought yeah. I thought I knew Huey didn't. I didn't realize you didn't either. Okay, was there any... No, I what, the time, what I have done. Well, yeah, good point. I keep forgetting. Yeah, I guess you wouldn't have added any guitar and there was somebody for that. Nothing. It was just a little tiny studio, you know. They, they could barely yeah. fit five of them in there. 
that album is a classic, considered a classic now. Oh, yeah. There's no way you would have known that then. Did you care at actually, all as the year goes Actually, on, year i got to tell you, John, I did know it. You did? Uh, McPhee came back. We were living in this, this rock and roll house called Headley Grange, south of London. Uh-huh. You know, that where, where Led Zeppelin made a bunch of their records. Mm-hmm. And we were living there at the time, and McPhee came back with this old woolen sack tape recorder and played me Allison and Red Shoes oh, after yeah. the first session. Uh-huh. And I went, oh, I, I said, I quit. You know, <laughs> I mean, we all knew how good it was. I didn't know how successful it would but we knew how good it was. Right. Oh, man. So, um, what was, now, did you ever get to meet or interact much with Elvis? Oh, absolutely. In fact, okay. there's, a, there's, there's an addition to this story. Uh, oh. Elvis is a great guy and very erudite. I mean, he's just brilliant, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He's, he's a very, very smart guy. So we maintained, you know, contact over the years. Of course, Huey and John are, you know, especially John McPhee probably has more contact with him than anybody. But John McPhee decided a couple of years ago to produce an album with a compilation from our first two Clover albums, the ones before Huey. Oh, yeah. So we come back in and recorded 12 tracks one of which is my song, Mr. Moon, which was a big favorite with the English guys, and Elvis is singing it on the new record. No way. I didn't know that. Way. Oh, that's yeah. Mr. Moon, he's a powerful man, pulled the ocean on the land, makes men And it's it's really great. Actually, a lot of people have heard it said it's, it takes you right back to his first album. Oh, that's great. It's got that same sound. It's McPhee, you know, playing guitar. And sure. The song is a little bit like Allison, you know? Yeah. Uh, so I'm excited about that. I mean, we're, we're trying to get that album out. It's almost, I mean, it's done, except McPhee's still doing the last couple overdubs here and there. Okay, okay. Wow, but that will be out you know, within a few months, you know. Okay. Excellent. Oh, that's good to hear. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, when Clover comes to an end, Huey goes off and does his thing. After, where do you go? Like, you had mentioned that Huey had intentions of starting his band, and you, I guess, thought about doing the same thing. What did you do? I mean, where, what happens in those three or four years until, until 8675 happens? Well, I got really depressed. Uh-oh. Uh, McPhee really? went right into the Doobie Brothers. And Huey went off to start his band, and uh, I figured the whole, you know, falling of Clover was my fault because uh, I wrote all the songs, you know, and I was a lead singer. So, you yeah. know, so I got pretty depressed. But then after a while, I put together a little four-track studio and I started recording songs. And uh, I had a kid; I was ahead mm-hmm. of everybody on that one except Mike I guess. And you know, for boy, about three years there, it was. It was really, you know, it was insanely rough for me. Really? And one day I went to my little studio thing, which was in a construction yard in San Rafael, California, and all my equipment was stolen. 
Oh. And I, so I went to work for a contractor, you know, hauling gravel and buckets. And that's yeah. when eight six seven five three zero nine got on the radio. That's insane. Now, okay, yeah. before so I, you, I went, I went from digging ditches, literally, which I didn't yeah. do for very long, a couple of weeks, and then <clears throat> like a month later, I was living in L.A. and I had a record deal. <laughs> now that is, I mean, that's insane. If you don't mind, illustrate a little bit for me. When you say those three years were really tough, what does that mean exactly? Well, at first I was homeless when I came back from England. Really? Okay. Yeah, I'd been gone for a while, and it was difficult. Yeah. You know, it was difficult. Okay. I mean, you know, mind you, you know, Clover, we spent, you know, like eight eight years or so being really broke when we were in our early 20s, you know, so yeah. I kind of knew how to live like that. Uh, true. But, you know, I had a kid, and, you know, uh-huh. It was it was a very difficult time. You know, okay. Fortunately, okay. I was around home and had some support that way, but it was from family. But uh, sure. it was still it was tough. But you know, I, I did imagine. write a whole bunch. Of, uh, I did write a whole bunch of stuff, and one of them was eight six seven five three zero nine, and another one was my Pat Benatar song, "Little Too Late." And which got a whole bunch of cuts. It was never quite a hit. Southside Johnny was on MTV with it for a bit. Southside Um, Johnny covered that? Southside Johnny, yeah. You've mentioned, I think, you have. Yeah. A, I, 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 I meant to. I didn't. I haven't read your book, but doesn't it say? Doesn't it imply something to the effect of it saved your life? I mean, it sounds like it did, but no, that uh, was my publisher's. Well, I hated that line. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. 
Okay. <laughs> a little over dramatic. Uh, okay. It, it, but, you know, at the time, like I said, I was completely broke. You know, yeah. I actually was digging ditches, you know, yeah. for a short time. And uh, in the middle of winter, it was raining and all that. And then the song got on the radio. Yeah. And it wasn't really supposed to get on the radio, but it just, you know, in those days, they used to play records, right? Mm-hmm. And DJs would, would play cuts, and the phones went off, and the song took off. So wow. all of a sudden, by the time it got to, like, in the top ten, I had a publishing deal in L.A., and then I got signed to Arista Records as an artist. So, so how you know, it happened, song you happened, did it happened so fast. It happened within, sure. you know... Six weeks. Six weeks from the time you wrote it. When you wrote it. No, six, week, really six weeks from when it it got into, like, the top 20. Okay. 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 I, wrote it, I wrote it in 81, and it came out in beginning of 82. Was the intent all along uh, to write it for Tommy, or were you just writing it for a publisher? No, I, I, wrote, I wrote the song. I wrote the song basically in 20 minutes. But, you know, it takes a while. You know, then... Uh, you know, I have a co-writer on it. It's Jim Keller from Tommy Two Tone. Because he came up with the idea that it was a girl's number on the bathroom wall. I had the music and the name and the number, but I didn't really didn't know what the story was about. And uh, he stopped by when I was recording it on the day that I wrote it. And you know, so we put those lyrics to it. And we thought it was funny. And then later on that year, you know, they recorded it and put it on their record. I think to debunk the famous rumor. They did not actually see that number on a bathroom stall. And that's no, I, I made it up. Yeah. I, you know, I always have to tell the truth about this one because they've told so many stories, which are better. The stories are probably more interesting than the truth, but the truth is I made up the name and number sitting yeah. on a, underneath a plum tree in my backyard, you know. Classic. And uh, instead of the song that saved me, it's more like the number that changed the world in some <laughs> weird way we can't decipher yet. That's true. <laughs> I mean, it's still, everyone still knows that phone number. Isn't that strange? Absolutely. I mean, 1981, it's just It's just one of those things. I mean, I, I'm kind of disconnected from it after all these years. I don't really have any financial interest in the song anymore. You don't? And uh, I don't. You don't get paid no. for that song anymore? No. I, oh. But I, I, but, well, I took a, you know, I took a payout. Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, got it. Okay, so you're fine. Yeah. You're probably yeah. fine. I mean, yeah. Okay. Frankly, that's a whole other podcast. We can go into why, you know, there's a point where you sell songs, you know, uh, if you have to. Well, yeah. yeah. I, um, I mean, maybe Guys today can't even sell songs because they're not worth anything anymore. Yeah, it's so frustrating. I know. Yeah. I mean, due to the Internet stuff, once people stop selling CDs, stop buying CDs, yeah. it was over for... Most people's catalogs, you know. Right. Luckily, I think that song in particular still gets licensed a lot. I mean, I'm sure that's why somebody even bothered to offer you you a bunch of money for it. I don't know. I don't know if you know the formulas for these things, but they they buy them based on you know ten years worth of earnings. So it's kind of scientific the way it's done. Anyway, that's that's over. I wish I still owned it, but you know, other things that came along in my life, I know, and uh, and uh, there was a time. When I went, shoot, I better get this while I can, because I won't get it later. Yeah. Now, how long ago was that? Uh, several years ago. Several years. Okay. Okay. I don't. Again, like Let's I said, the, 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 the Great Recession of 2008 to 2011 was, you know, changed a lot of people's lives. Got it. Including mine. 
Sure, you can, and you can answer this or tell me to shut up or cut it out or whatever, but, I mean, were you, based on not just that, but the other hits you've had, and the song, I'm going to ask you about some of these other songs here in a second. I mean, can you, again, going back to paying your bills, can you live off the money from these songs for the time being, for the rest of your life? I mean, in a semi-comfortable fashion? No, no, actually, royalties after the, you know, like I say, once CDs stop selling and the Internet took over and streaming and all that, I would say that most people's royalties were cut by 90%. Okay, yeah. Okay, okay. depending on the song, you know, depending yeah. on who you are. Yeah. And other uses, you know, if you got a lot of TV and movies, you know, that yeah. those still pay pretty well. But, you know, radio plays and sales of CDs, and those things, you know, look, you know, basic 75309 in the early 2000s, was on you know, lots of compilation CDs. It sold yeah. millions. Uh, yeah. Not that I made millions of dollars because you get a reduced rate on all those things. But oh, okay. You know, it earned it earned pretty good money. You know, okay. The, the business is not the business is not as financially glamorous as many people think it is. Well, that's kind of why I try to touch on it so, uh, sensitively in here a little bit. Is because I think it kind of pulls back the curtain for regular people. We just hear the term rock star, and we just assume everybody is sitting pretty and doing fine. But the reality of it, there's a lot of logistics and politics involved. And, um, well, I, 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 would, I would say this about the current state of affairs. is that the, the guys that I know that are artists and play out, you know, that play concerts, you know, like uh-huh. Huey and me and, you know, people like that, you know, they're making a really good living now because ticket sales for those things are really expensive. Yeah. You know, back when I saw Jimi Hendrix at, at Fillmore West, it was $2.50. Oh, goodness. Oh, if you go to see Springsteen at some arena, it's 150 bucks. Yeah. So all you got to do is do the math on, you know, 10,000 people at 150 bucks. I mean, it's a different yeah. payday than it used to be and, uh, for those people. And there's lots of there's lots of gigs out there for, for bands that had a few hits. Yeah. And, and do creative things and play, you know... Even you know county fairs and stuff, you still make pretty good money if you do enough yeah. of them. Yeah, but I mean, you're, you're handcuffed uh, the road. But yeah, songwriters. songwriters have just been clobbered. Okay, yeah. like I spent I spent 15 years in Nashville, right? I moved to Nashville in the late 90s, and I learned a tremendous amount about songwriting there. I didn't really like a lot of the, frankly, the politics, uh, the political politics of the town. So okay. culturally, I don't know how well I fit, but I I have incredible respect for the talent of the songwriters. Mm-hmm. And I've watched all these really great songwriters, people that I think are so much more talented than I am. And they couldn't make a living, you know, because the royalties just went away. And so they all went, you know, many of them were set up, you know, maybe set up. Or, you know, I, I, don't, I couldn't even tell you. Right. You know, some are still going, but it's really been harmful for songwriters. Yeah. So... You know, yeah, that it's part. It is. You know, I had mentioned um, a couple weeks ago. I live in Denver, but I there was an '80s concert, one of those you know nostalgia tours coming through Salt Lake City, where I'm from. So I drove out for right. the weekend and stayed with family. And Tommy Tutone was there. It was the first time I'd ever seen him. And I mean, on the one hand, I'm so grateful that he's there, but on the other, I feel bad. And because he came out and he played two songs, and the second one was. Eight six seven five. I don't even remember what the first one was, and uh, that's I, it, you know. And then 
it's there's only maybe a quarter of the crowd is even there at that point. The sun's still out, and he's second on the bill. And but that's what well, the ticket for that one is you had to have more than one or two hits. <laughs> yeah, it sure is. You know, yeah, definitely. if you're a band that has you know eight to ten hits, yeah, you got a show. Yeah, and it's, it's just him and people, his It's all hundred nostalgia, isn't it? You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like. I don't care what big artist is out there. They're doing their hits. Yeah. Because that's what people want to hear. They're, you know. I went and saw the Doobie Brothers in, in Nashville last year. Was it last year? I guess it was. You know, and they did, you know, they did some new stuff, and the audience was okay, but, mm-hmm. you know, they were waiting for listening to the music, you know, and buy sure. water. Sure. You know, that's what they want yeah. to hear. Yeah. So, when I saw Tommy. It is. It's sad. And when I saw Tommy, it was just him and an acoustic guitar, which I'm sure is another measure toward keeping overhead low. You know, you don't have to pay a band. If you're only going to be out there for 10 minutes, it may as well just be you and a guitar anyway. But uh, So anyway, I'm glad that he has that out there. Listen listen to this aspect of what it's like, and you can look this up on YouTube. Rick Springfield, right? Mm -hmm. He does an acoustic guitar thing where he does... Jesse's girl, Jenny, and Je- and something Stacy's mom as a medley. Oh, really, he's really at it. Okay, but I mean, it's kind of sad, don't you think? Mm. I mean, he's Rick Springfield. You know, he had you know Jesse's girl. It's one of the great pop singles, really. It really is. Oh, he's great. But, but he's doing that. So I mean, that's the way it goes. It's showbiz. Yeah, man, you know. Yeah, it's rough. Okay, so back yeah, I, I described I, I the songwriter's career the other day as it's like a roller coaster. Yeah. You know, you get on the ride, you go up, you go down, you spin around, you go sideways, you scream, you laugh, you puke, you cry, and then you get off the ride and somebody else takes your place. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Sounds like it. You go, what happened? Yeah. Why is it over? You know? Right. So, uh, but, you know, we do find ways to go on. Uh, true, this true. Is, like me, I still write. I, you know, I just made an, an album and put it out, and nobody cares. But I like yeah, the music a lot. Yeah, I, I like the music a lot. I mean, I don't care if anybody else likes it or not. Sure. Now, when you put out an album like that, are you able to? What do you do with it? I mean, do you play in little bars or little clubs locally, or what, what's the plan for stuff like that? I should say the album is called Call of the Wild. It came out last year, and it's really good. But what do you do to promote something like that? How do you get it out there? Well, I haven't gotten it out there, but I don't <laughs> I don't really have a plan. But where I live, I, I can't actually perform in Canada anyway. You can't? So, oh, like a visa? Yeah, uh, no. It would be complicated, and there's no okay. gigs for that. If I ever was going to play it, it would be back in my hometown. Okay. Back in you know in the Bay Area, and maybe around the Clover. But when the Clover album comes out, we're undoubtedly going to do a big show. Oh, fun! Uh, okay. Yeah, because that and that you know maybe in the spring next year or something. It's going to be you know we'll try to do something kind of significant, and you know I'm, we hope for the big special guests like Huey and Elvis and stuff. You know maybe you know, but okay. uh, but maybe around then I'll I'll try to pull an Alex call gig off. It's complicated because, you know, where's the money, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I know, me to play, go out and play, I, I want a certain amount of preparation because that's what I'm used to. Sure. And that's hard to get if you're not, you know, making, you know, 15 grand a night or something, you know? Right. 
So anyway, so in other words, I haven't done anything with it really. I just put it out, and a few people bought it. And, okay. Uh, well, hopefully, people get started on to it. We'll play a little bit of it right here. There's a storm building in the coming night. I can feel it in the heat charged air. There's a hateful lightning striking from the sky. Ain't no place to hide nowhere. Tumbleweeds and hopeful dreams going straight to hell. And the sand. I really like it, you know. I, I like the music I do, and then the and then the other thing is this Clover album that's coming out will I think generate you know some interest. Okay, so I want to I do want to touch on the the early '80s because you know Jenny yeah. comes out and changes your life, and then uh, it should be said that you have a song "Bad Is Bad" on Huey Lewis's fourth album. That wasn't a right. single, but that album sold like 20, 30 million copies or something like that. Yeah, but I only have, and that was a Clover song. We used to put, we used to give little share of each of our, of the songs to each guy in the band. Oh, I had really? very really? little to do with the song. Oh, That was Huey's okay. song. Yeah. Okay. So, I, you know, I, I guess I've made a few bucks on that, but I never saw any big payday from Bad is Bad. Oh, really? I would have assumed yeah. just having a credit on an album that big would have gotten you a little something. No? That's what I thought. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, whoops. <laughs> okay. But still, your life there probably, going pretty... there, there may be things about the finances of that that I can't even tell you about. Okay, okay. Nothing to, that have nothing to do with Huey. Okay, got okay. it. Not, okay, not any disparaging thing on Huey, but... Okay, okay. I didn't really make much money on that. Uh, okay. I had a Pat Benatar okay. song that... Yeah, uh, a little too late. That came right on the heels of eight six seven five three zero nine. So I had two hits in that year, and 
Um, but yet, that run for me in L.A. was really like one year. It was 1983. Really? Mm. You know, I got signed to the publishing deal and the record deal. And by Christmas of that year, my publisher had been fired, and the new publisher hated me. And really? my album came out and didn't go anywhere, and the head of promotions quit, and my album just died. So, so <laughs> yeah. it was like, it was like... I, I was hearing it's Alex Call and Richard Marks. They're the breakout artists, you know, and then all of a sudden it was just Richard Marks, you know. <laughs> Good old Richard Marks. He comes up on and that was, uh He's a great, very talented guy. Yeah. You know, yeah, you must but, have. You know, so, so after that, I mean, you know, it's a classic showbiz thing. You know, everybody wanted to be my baby, and then nobody wanted to return my calls. It happened really quickly. So you're the hot yeah. guy, you write this big hit, and I'm guessing that's what attracts Pat Benatar to want one of your songs. And then you get the solo album deal, and, and Alex Call comes out in 1983. It's, we should say, there was, I, I don't even know, was this another Saturday night? Was that a hit? Or was that, did it tank? It was just another high school Bubbling under, and it was like a 101 or something in the Hot 100. <laughs> okay. The story of my life. Yeah. And, right. uh, but the head of promotions left to become the 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 president of a different re record label. I won't name the guy. He's a great guy. He's my friend today. But he called me and said, "I'm sorry." You know, because that was it. You know, my yeah. album just died after that. And you know how that you know what that story is. You know. Sure. You have one team that is on your side, and then a new yeah. team comes in, and they don't want anything to do with it. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not exaggerating when I say probably 75 percent of the people I've had on this podcast would tell that exact same story. Exactly, it's a classic, yeah. and yeah. I and I lived it. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. I experienced that, and it it was really shocking to me. But I thought people actually liked me, but that was completely yeah. wrong. <laughs> well, and it's too bad because that your solo album from '83. I, it's hard to find, and I could I found like eight of the ten tracks on YouTube, and it's so good, and it sounds just like all that great stuff, like Greg Kinn or those other sort of new wave mixed with power pop stuff that was coming out at the time. And you wonder if the guy just if you just had this hit, and you're writing for other people. Again, this is a common story that comes up on here. Your record label should have felt like we have a valuable asset here that is making us money. All we have to do is promote it correctly, get the songs out there, and we're going to continue on this gravy train. But they never do that, and it never makes sense why they don't do that. Well, you know, it's, with the head of promotions was the guy that quit. Yeah, I guess. To take another gig. 
so, you know, and they didn't even hire anybody for a while. And then when they hired the next guy, they're on to the next thing, you know. I mean, yeah. a record only has a short shelf life when it comes yeah. out, you know, so in the old days. I think it's different now because it's all it's all completely different. Right, right. You know, in the old days, you know, it was like, you know, you had X number of radio stations and reviews and stuff that would be written when a record came out and it determined the whole thing. It was like a Broadway show or something, you know what I mean? Right, right. You could be shut down after a week, you know? Yeah. So I got to witness that. It was charming. Okay. <laughs> charming. Nice. Now, there's another kind of an eight-year or a five-year gap here before... Huey records Perfect World, which I gotta say, that's my favorite Huey Lewis in the news hit. It actually goes well. It goes before that because while I'm not listed on the song, I gave Huey the title for a song called "Power of Love." You did. I was trying to look yeah. that up to see if you had anything to do. It, does, with that. it won't find me on it because they didn't want to. They they cut me in on the deal, but they oh. didn't want my name on the record because they wanted to look in house. Really? You know what I mean? You got a little yeah. slice of "Power of Love." I got a, I got a slice that paid my bills for a lot a lot more than Asic Seven did. Nice, really nice. Okay, okay. Yeah. That so that one, that one, that one, that's the song that really saved my ass. You know, okay. not the song that saved my life, but yeah. And then, and then a couple of years after that, what was it? Actually, three or four years, uh, I guess. Seemed pretty quickly. It was Perfect World was out, and I wrote that by myself. I even did, you know, the horn arrangements for Tower of Power. I mean, it's really? great. I love that. Well, they, they did my horn parts. I didn't write the charts themselves, but uh, yeah, they did my horn parts. So okay. That was that was a crowning thing for me. Was Perfect World. I bet. Because because I because that was my music and my idea and you know sort of the Alex Call the philosopher you know mm. peeking through. I mean that's that's kind of that's. Perfect World represents where I'm at as a writer in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. So I was really happy with that and you know, got to be almost number one. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that was really their last big hit because that album didn't, it sort of underperformed. They got a little, yeah. not weird, but they sort of stretched, I guess, on that album in ways that the buying you know, public wasn't comfortable. What's that? <laughs> Yeah, you don't want to mess with your fans, you know. Exactly. They're thinking they're, you know, they could they could do whatever they wanted, but their fans wanted what they'd already heard. Yeah. But yeah, you know, truly, most you know, look at 
you know, most artists, you know, have a thing, and then mm-hmm. they either live off of that or they don't afterwards. You know, you've uh-huh. done a great job of living off of it. Right. Yeah, I, mean, I love him. You look over, you look at Tom Petty's career. Tom Petty has put out music, at, you know, album after album after album over the years, and it's all innovative and and still maintains his sound. But you know, that's why Tom Petty. If you look up, you can go look up what people get paid. Yeah. You know, yeah. for gigs, he gets yeah. a lot. Yeah, I believe it. Because it's you know he's innovated and changed. Because Huey did his thing, and they, and he just kind of took that. And they've played that ever since. Yeah, uh, yeah. He, played, he hasn't put out very many records, you know. No. no, they slowed way down. But he lived comfortably in Montana and is probably doing just fine. Well, and they've, care. And, they've, they've done great. Yeah. Because they've always had a great live act. Yeah. They still have it, you know, and they yeah. have lots of fans. They, but they just didn't get back on the radio again. Right, right. You know. I and I think that happens to a lot of, a lot of people. And then... Like I say, you can still go on. If you have 8, 10, 12 hits like Huey does, you just go out and play them forever. Yep. yep. You've been playing them for 40 years. That's right. Now i got to ask you, know? you about one more song. Yeah. Just Take My Heart. Did you write that for Mr. Big? Yeah. 
Unbelievable. It's unfortunate because music is this beautiful thing, right? You Absolutely, know? and it gets targeted by all the crap. Happens. Yeah. It's like the Force, you know? There's like the Jedi and the Sith, you know what I mean? <laughs> like the Jedi are out there fighting, and the Sith are taking the royalties. <laughs> oh, that's classic, yes. <laughs> so, okay, so but so what have you been doing? I mean, these days, what does Alex Call do when he wakes up in the morning? Do you, uh, what's your day like? What do you do today? Well, I go, my girlfriend's an incredible photographer, nature oh, photographer. Okay. So... We go out. Today we went out. We took a cruise. We saw a fox and a couple of bears. You know, we drive around looking to, you know, looking for animals. And uh-huh. I have a little studio thing. It's very modest compared to what I used to have. Mm-hmm. But you don't really need much to record nowadays. Sure. It's, you know, laptop and a couple of speakers and a few guitars. I mean, that's all you need. So I write music, and uh, I'm very involved in environmental movements and, you know, Trying to save animals, and uh, I'm very politically enthusiastic in a San Francisco sort of way. Okay. You know, turning 69 years old next year, so, you know, kind of who cares? <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm looking right. forward to the clover thing coming out. I think that's going to be great. cool. Cool. Yeah. Okay. So at this point, you and your wife, I mean, or, I'm sorry, your girlfriend, um, sounds like kind of a normal existence. It doesn't even necessarily revolve around music unless you want it to. Right? No, not at all. Okay. Uh, I wish it did. I wish it did more. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I wish I had I more music stuff, on, but I don't. But yeah, I mean, you know, there's other things in life besides music. I mean, sure. music is always. You know, I grew up with music in me, and it's still there. You know. Yeah. And I love doing it. I really love recording. You know, making little records and making little little songs. You yeah. know, when I when I was out of Clover and I first got my first four track recorder. And learn to overdub and stuff. You know, that for me was like opening a door to a lot of fun. Yeah. And a lot of hours where, you know, I didn't really care what was going on in the rest of the universe. <laughs> right, right. And I still like that. You know, that that's the best part of it. You know, you getting into where I really love it and it's really great and I play it over and over again. And I wish other people could hear stuff, but, you know, it just doesn't work that way sometimes. Yeah. There's a lot of great music in the world now. You know, a lot of people know how to do it. And so a lot of well, it's just unheard. Yeah, that's very, very true. At least you can say you've contributed to some of the really good stuff that's out there. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, I not got lucky, you know. That. You did. No, you got I, lucky a few times. I, 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 I tripped into the zeitgeist, you know, the, the, yeah. the spirit of the moment with 8675309. And, you know, I have a lot of rock buddies who have made millions and stuff and have great careers who really don't have a song quite like that. You know yeah. what I mean? Very true. Not only that, yeah. not only that, but I'm not that very good guitar player. I'm okay, but I made up the riff for eight six seven five three zero nine, which so good, which is a classic. You know what I mean? It is a classic. Yes. I always kid McPhee about that. I say, McPhee, I got that riff, and you don't. <laughs> <laughs> He's got some others. Uh, Okay, so in closing, what is just your favorite, tastiest memory of this whole shebang? I mean, going back so many years, almost 50 years, over 50 years, what is just uh, the most I-can't-believe-this-happened-to-me moment? When you sit back or you're looking at bears and foxes with your girlfriend and you think, I'm the guy, this happened, what is that? Well, you know, I feel good about 8675309, you know, because... Mm -hmm. 
because I was really down on my thing, and that became a classic song, right, that people still know. When I cross a Canadian border, I tell them I wrote that song, and everybody cracks up. Okay? <laughs> and uh, one of the border guards said, I've been playing that for 30 years in my band. Thanks but I'll tell you, there was one that one, if you want to just pick a specific moment, which is hard to do because it's uh, well, whatever. not like whatever you want to share. But there's one moment when I was I was doing a session in the East Bay with some horn guys one day, and I was driving back to Marin from Oakland and coming across the Bay Bridge and right into the toll plaza there, and Perfect World by Huey Lewis and the News came on the radio, mm-hmm. and it was the first time I had heard it, mm-hmm. and the sun was shining. And I had the radio up loud, and I was listening to that. I was driving. There was a city right in front of me. That was a good moment. <laughs> yeah, that's the best yeah. right there. That was just a moment, you know. I mean, like, you know, I don't look at it as, you know, I mean, a lot of good things have happened. And a lot of, you know, like for everybody in all our careers, a lot of heartbreak has happened, too, you yeah. know. Yeah. A lot of hard times. You know, I mean, I'm not, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not a rich man at this point in my life, I'll tell you that. But... Not that that matters, because I don't think that matters much. But those those are good moments, you know. Eight seven five three zero. You know. Good. I wrote good. it. I got it. That's I got right. your number on the wall. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool. Well, thank you for talking to me, Alex. I appreciate it. You're hey, man, talent, for, unlike yeah. any other. Taking me out. Your journey into the lesser known. And, uh... <laughs> See, that's the beauty of it. I don't. It's not. It's it's like like I said when people connect dots and they realize the same guy does all these things, then they begin to wonder, well, how did I not know that? You know, it's fun trivia. It's not lesser known anymore. It becomes it raises the profile. It, it brings a a new level or layer of uh, value or importance, I think, to your career that maybe people who just do one or two things wouldn't have known. Well, That's, I just well, I'm just yeah. trying to honor you. Well, that's great. I mean, you know, and you know, what's funny is that. This happened, and well, something that just happened this week is there's a show on HBO called The Deuce. Yeah, yeah. The, and they're using they're using old Clover songs in it. Are they really? In each I haven't started watching it yet. I have them on my DVR. They're using snippets of old Clover songs, and we're actually getting paid for it. So. Well, there you go. Uh, okay. Yeah. So there you go. So it goes on. There you have it, Alex Call. So Alex is going to be sending me a copy or two of Call of the Wild. I don't know right now how many copies I'll be giving, but I'll be giving them away. I want to close it out here with one of my favorite Alex Call songs. It's on that first debut solo album from 1983. The song is called Blue Avenue. I like this track a lot. Now, let's talk about some business. So we're going to thank some people for the... for. Uh, furthering the word with our Chris McLernan of Saigon Kick episode. Not not as many shares as we've been getting lately, but that actually got some pretty decent numbers. That was a really fun interview. I've been hearing a lot of good feedback from that one. So I want to thank everybody who got involved, uh, specifically Steve Olivas for um, sharing it, as well as the Rock Solid podcast. Thank you, Pat Francis. Jay Sabluski, Love Jay. He won one of those... Um, Hired Gun Blu-rays, Mike McKay, Robert Merrick. I didn't know either of those guys, but they were Andy, who is uh, Fect 9999, I believe. He's uh, always been a very loyal supporter. So thanks, everybody. Hopefully some new people are finding us, going back into the archives, looking at the older episodes, uh, finding things that interest them. Thank you, everyone, for doing that. 
I also wanted to read some iTunes reviews. We got a new one this week from Michael Street. I love Michael. I met him at the Rock and Pod Expo. Oh, which he mentions in this review. So here we go. Uh, Michael Street, five stars. John is one of a one of a kind. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. <laughs> he says, I went to the Nashville Rock and Pod Expo. Got to witness in person John do a roundtable discussion on songwriting. Hopefully you guys heard that. I was proud of that one. At the same time, I was doing a co-host on another podcast. I think it was Michael Butler's Rock and Roll Geek Show. If you haven't heard it, Michael was on that recently. Nothing was going to stop me from getting to tell John in person how much I was a fan of the show. Oh, thanks, Michael. And he did do that. It meant a lot to me. Not only did I get to do that, I also tried to get him to reveal a few upcoming shows, which I try to keep secret. He very reluctantly admitted to one. Uh, I guess I caved. I love, to I love the surprise factor of his show. In case any fan of the show is wondering, John is exactly the man you would expect in person. I hope that's good. Thanks, Michael. Keep up the great work. That means a lot to me. Thanks a lot, Michael. Okay, we got another one here. Cyberbear left a couple of them. Uh, reveals, five stars, reveals the intertwinings of the music biz. John's podcast has quickly become a favorite of mine. Nice. Even the ones that don't sound interesting at first view quickly become great listens. Obscure guests will name drop Stevie Nicks, Tears for Fears, or Bob Dylan, and wow, magic happens. John asks great questions and gets the most out of every guest. Thank you, Cyberbear, for saying that. Uh, one more. McGishan. Ooh, a four-star. Good butt. Dot, dot, dot. Okay, let's hear this. Great subjects, but horrible interview style. <laughs> nice. Stop with the yeah, right, and other little tidbits that John uses to show that he is knowledgeable that disrupt the conversation with the great guests. In all caps, let the conversation breathe. Ugh, sorry, McKishan. I recommend that you download an episode of The Double Stop and check out his style. Uh, I listen frequently to the double stop. I have a lot of respect for Brian Sword. I have a very different style from Brian Sword, and I'm okay with that. Brian does his thing. His is very minimal. He asks a handful of questions, and he mainly gets out of the way, and I respect what he does. But I do it my way, and uh, I do it more conversationally. I, I know I get a lot of flack for the interruptions, the rights, and the wows, and the yas, and I've said this before. <clears throat> First of all, I'm trying to work on that. I hope I don't do it as much anymore. I really just do it because <laughs> I've t spoken to so many long-winded people that I do it to remind them that I'm on the phone, you know, so that things don't get too far out of whack and that they don't, you know, go on and on and on. So I, I kind of do it just to, just to remind them that I'm engaged, I'm listening, you know, we're not looking at each other so they can't see my eyes, they can't see that I'm nodding my head or taking a breath to insert myself. So I just say the wows and the yas and the rights and stuff like that to let them know that I'm here. Um, I'm sorry, I... I I, I kind of like my interview style, but I guess I'm rubbing McKishan the wrong way. I'm sorry, McKishan, and if anyone else out there thinks I'm a terrible interviewer, I'm really sorry. Um, maybe you can give me some more tips. And, I, and I'm not being sarcastic. I really mean that. I'm always trying to be better. And I always encourage all of you to leave whatever kind of review you want, even bad ones. I'll take them to heart. So I'm really happy that McKishan did that. Thank you. 
Okay, now, one other thing I want to remind everyone about the t-shirts. I've been hearing from... <laughs> this. It's so sweet. I'll get a, I'll get a text or a message telling me uh, your shirt's arrived. Or I'm getting your shirt from my husband for Christmas. Or whatever, something like that. It really means a lot to me, guys. And again, we've got all sizes in there in black and heather gray to match the logo. They're $19.99. Um, hopefully that's pretty cheap. I, as I've said many times, we're just trying to price them comfortably so that they're fun and it's not meant to like break your bank or anything. There is a more expensive, I think it's $29.95, $29.99 long sleeve version. Um, that's just because they charge more because they take more material. So anyway, thanks to anyone who's bought a uh, shirt. Uh, I really, really appreciate that. Lastly, uh, requests. So haven't gotten as many lately, but I want to mention one from Jed Baudouin. I hope I'm saying that right, Jed. I love Jed. I hear from him frequently. And he requested Frankie from Frankie and the Knockouts. And I wanted to mention that specifically because Frankie has come up before and I can't find him. So Frankie, whose name is Frankie Pravit, I believe, for anyone who doesn't know, after Frankie and the Knockouts... He won an Oscar because he wrote I've Had the Time of My Life and Hungry Eyes for Dirty Dancing. So he probably never has to work again. But I've I've sent him a friend request on Facebook ages ago. I never heard back. Frankie and the Knockouts have a very old school website. And I've clicked contact and sent emails there. And they've bounced back. So I unless maybe I know someone who knows him, I don't know. But I would love to have Frankie on the show, and I'll try. I have tried, and that's what I've come up with. So I just wanted you guys to know. Now, let's get back to Tommy Two-Tone. Actually, Tommy Heath is his name, but he is synonymous with his band. As you know, he was the singer of 8675309. That was really their only big hit, unfortunately. But there's more to discover there in that band if you're interested. I have wanted to talk to him for a while. I was reluctant. I'll, I explain why at the very beginning here. But um, Tommy's a character. Very introspective. Almost uncomfortably so, actually. He's so honest with himself. Uh, so I hope you enjoy this conversation. He lives in Oregon, but we talked while he was on tour in San Diego. You're a name that comes up a lot. I've had you requested as a guest many times, and my... My thinking is that I um, I sort of resisted that because it seems it seems to me that whenever anyone ever does a sort of a where are they now type profile, you're the go-to guy for stuff like that. And uh, yeah. so I felt like I already kind of knew your story, but then I thought, you know, it's actually been a while. You know, I remember those things being very popular, like on VH1 in the 90s and stuff like that. And I think I know the story. I think you work in computers, but I don't know much else. And so I thought, well, you know, if he'd be open to talking, maybe we could flesh it out a little bit. So what's, are you still working in computers? Is that your regular job? I am, yeah. I'm back at it. I retired in 2006, set out to get back into music full time. I was part of a new music network, we were, and I moved to Nashville from California. And oh, we were building this whole thing, and then all the banks failed. And oh, no. Our backers were all bankers, and, and it kind of faded out. But anyway, I was, I was uh, out of computers from 2006 to 2009, you know, 
Yeah. And I go to Tennessee every once in a while because I fancy myself a country western songwriter. Oh, okay. And I'm not very good at beating on doors, obviously. Yeah. I'm actually promised probably the poorest famous person in the world <laughs> just because I'm pretty private. Uh, um, yeah. You know, I'm not keeping up on telling everyone. Right. Every time I go to the bathroom, it's not on yeah. Facebook. Right. But. <laughs> I love to write songs, and yeah, I write a lot. When I sit down to write, a, before a, what I call a two-tone song comes out, there'll be a Rockabilly song and a couple of Country Western songs and a bunch of humorous songs. And okay. I'm trying to fit them all into my latest recordings, but I I think my country song is good, but I never really sold any. Okay. So I was back there, and a, a guy talked me into saving his business. So I came back out to Oregon where I... I faked my way into the software business here about 94. <laughs> okay. And I get back into it, and here I am now. Yeah, okay. Were you always a software-type guy? That's actually my day job. I'm in software sales. Um, um, no, I was. it was just a hobby, and uh, I thought when I grew up and I'd be <laughs> a teacher. I had a teaching certificate, but I hated teaching. I'm the world's worst teacher. Why? My parents never taught me any positive reinforcement. Uh, it was all sarcastic, put-down kind of stuff, and I turned into them, the worst side of them. I love my parents, but I didn't like myself when I was a teacher. Really? I was a substitute teacher in Tennessee for five years, and I'm, I know a lot about I know a little about everything. Yeah. Uh, but it, it just wasn't me, so... Huh. I tried to make a living out of this and uh, ended up uh, finding a job in Oregon. That's I ended up here. And then I went back to California and back to Tennessee and came back here. So I'm in Oregon. It's interesting. I interviewed Walter Egan, um, you know, him, Magnet and Steel from the late 70s. Yeah, I interviewed him a couple of years ago, and he – lives in the Nashville area, and is also a substitute teacher. Yeah, I've met him there. How have you? Were you guys kind of working the the circuit together, substituting? No, I don't know. We met just at a club. I think it was at a okay. uh, Mickey Thomas gig. We were both there. And... Mickey Thomas of Starship? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Well, we were both there, and I met him there, and he's, you know, yeah. always admired his work. He's a great guy. Oh man, how how would it be to be a student in the Nashville area and have Walter Egan as your teacher one day and Tommy Heath as your teacher the next? That would just be heaven. That sounds great. Well, I'm one of those substitute teachers that tried to get kids to actually do stuff. Oh well, no one would have. <laughs> so I wasn't real popular. Yeah. Okay, so it's still software mainly in Oregon. I mean, I saw you play the 80s festival in Salt Lake City, and I was super bummed that you only came out and did two songs. I know that's how those things work. I go to a lot of those. Do you, yeah, um, kind of dragged. It was like foreplay without sex. But, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, pretty are, much. My kids are in college, so I got to do a couple of those. Sure, of course. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. I mean, how often do you do shows like that, and then how often do you do your own shows? I mean, could, is it possible have, to go see an you hour? Saw, just you, you actually saw the last one of those I did. Oh, really? Um, I had done, I got talking that year before, and all this, and that particular tour, you know, they all have, 
it's fake, you know. They have backup tracks and all that. So I thought I'd try it, and I hated it. So I said, I'm not doing that. So I'll play if you bring my acoustic guitar. I think that's what I did, right? Yeah, you did. I I actually do a good acoustic guitar, but... I had to do a couple of those left in the contract in the previous year, but in the previous year I decided to stop doing those, and I had to I had to take a look at what I was doing. You know, I go play '80s shows, but I don't really do an '80s. I didn't really do an '80s act. I did Jenny and Angel Cito and Cheap Date, and then whatever I wanted. songs and I'm here now so I like whatever I wrote um, okay my partner who's running the, the actual Tommy Two-Tone band has relined my own show the other problem was I had a lot of places around the country that I go about every three years there's a bunch of great players there and we all do a show now it's on YouTube the next day whether it's good or bad yeah. Yeah, and people had no idea what they were getting. So now, when you hire Tommy Two Tone, it's the actual <laughs> '80s band. Right. And then my, my, I no longer play solo as Tommy Two Tone. I've finally grown up, decided to use my own name, Tommy Heath. Okay. Which I couldn't pronounce when I was young because I'm mobile <laughs> too bad. And then my new stuff. I don't know what I'm going to do with my new rock stuff. I'm probably going to have a third band of new new rock band, because I want Tommy Two-Tone to be what these people expect, like go do the cruises and all, and you know. Yeah. But I'm trying to do it all, which certain people can do, you know, but yeah. I don't seem to find a formula. Really? And so I'm now a sing, song, singer-songwriter, Tommy Heath, and sometimes with just me and drums, and sometimes me. And then I'm the band, Tommy Two-Tone, and then something else is coming, because I got okay. a lot of new stuff. I'm on a roll. I don't do music all the time. I get into these five-year roles, and got it. And now I'm doing, just churning out ideas here. I don't know where to fit them all. Yeah, I noticed um, you got a new song on uh, Spotify, a little red book.
Yeah, that was fun. That's part of a series where we do old songs a different way. Like, we have another version that's pretty funny. We do, like, an 80s band does a 70s song, so we have a version of um, Operator as played by The Clash. (laughs) I think it's pretty funny. We're pretty creative along those lines because... my friends and I, we're all students of music, and there's so much available now. So Yeah. And I just have to really get it out. I got three or four albums that I made, and I thought were going to be great, but I went, found somebody sell it for me, so I can go back to writing yeah. software. I'm not a salesman, so that's a problem. Yeah, yeah. You do, I mean, these. you mentioned uh, the cruises and stuff like that. I mean, do you not make a decent enough living doing just the 80s shows and the concerts on your own or whatever it is that you do? Or do you want to also have that outlet of the computer stuff as well? Oh, yeah. I'm not I, – I would hate to play music all the time. Oh, really? I really uh, have – I really uh, – well, not just the playing, but all that goes along with it. You know, I have friends uh, that live in Hollywood, and they're just always on. Me, I don't play at home. I go home and turn into this just other guy. It all started when I was in San Francisco, see – I played for eight or nine people. No one came to hear the band. And then people came in and signed us instead of all the other people. And I would literally get on a plane and go down to Texas. And they would have red carpets and treat me like a god. And then I'd fly back home to San Francisco, have to jump start my car in a parking lot and go back to just being nobody. Uh And I actually found that was very rewarding because... It's fun to get into being, to go somewhere and be Tommy Two-Tone. But to be that all the time, you can't grow mentally as if you are an artist all the time. It just is tricky into being stupid. But aren't those the fruits of success? I mean, don't you see, uh, you know, and I'm not, I don't mean to make it sound shallow, but aren't creative people out there hoping to connect with people? And you made a song that connects with millions still to this day. Aren't the red carpets and the nice hotels and stuff like that, isn't that, do you ever just see that as like reward for having invented something or created something that meant a lot to people? Or is it all just like, this is not real. I don't, I'm no, I, being I, a regular I, guy. I'm, total, I'm totally into it. And I'm, I walk around and be Tommy Two Down and, <laughs> but at home, I, if I woke yeah, up and said I'm Tommy Two Down, I would just like, my okay. IQ would go down every day. So it's just like, oh, yeah, I'm Tommy yeah. Tutone. i got to go do this. Meanwhile, I'm off just because Tommy Tutone is just a creation of my mind. I have many creations of my mind. There's First off, there's like um, my country western guy. His name is Johnny Beige. And he's <laughs> every bit as vibrant as Tommy Tutone to me, but... And some of my some fans know about him, but because okay. I, you know, don't do publicity right. Yeah, yeah. But he's he's every bit a part of me, and I turn into that guy and the programming guy called the professor. Huh. And I have this obnoxious guy everybody calls the sergeant, huh. and I'm literally like sitting up here listening to my board of directors going, "Who shall I be today?" Yeah. I don't know which one I really am. So it's just like I try these things on. Yeah. And the whole thing I've 
my whole life has been done on uh, this nagging feeling that I'm supposed to do something really important, and it's important that I try all these different things and be. Uh, I'm a generalist, let's say. Uh huh. If you're gener, if you're generous, you call me a generalist. If you were sarcastic, you call me a cultural dilettante. I guess. Mm-hmm. I'm just trying all these different things. My real mission has yet to be revealed to me. Really. You think that yeah, after after all this time, you feel like there's yeah, I'm still I'm still a almost fifty years old now, but I still think there's a mission for me, and all this stuff is training for it. Huh, that's really oh. interesting. I wonder if that makes it. I mean, you know, I'm not trying to psychoanalyze, but does that make it different difficult to kind of sit back and relax and enjoy these years of your life? I mean, you've been doing this for forty years, but it sounds like you're not able to let yourself just enjoy the spoils of your efforts, no? I've shot myself in the foot for 40 years. I'm the poorest, famous person in the world. I got, I have to work at a software business to, to feed my kids and put them to college, and that's one of the most famous songs in the world, just because I don't yeah. do all the stuff right. But yeah. maybe that's okay. part of it. I don't know. I just, okay. and me, I have a big ego. I'm a shy egomaniac, I think is what I would call it. And, uh, but I don't. That's good. Okay. And I'm talking to you. You can hear that I have a positive image yeah. of myself, and I think that I'm great. But yeah. I don't wake up in the day and go, I'm going to call up these people and tell them how great I am. Yeah. I kind of wait for them to call me. Yeah, I know what you mean. So yeah. it's not a pretty picture, but yeah, it probably gets harder and, and happy. Harder. So what the hell? Yeah. Well, it probably gets harder and harder in this day and age too, because. The create, we'll call them creative people, whether they truly are or not, that rise to the top are the people who are the self-promoters. Because there's not a record label out there. It's always been that way, yeah. I mean, there's a person like Madonna or somewhere, they had some talent, but their main talent was self-promotion. Yeah, that's true. I have no ability to do that whatsoever. I mean, I'll talk about myself and tell you I'm great, but I'm not going to wake up and call somebody and tell them how great I am. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. Okay. Well, I want to go back to those early days for a minute. I mean, one of the things that I sort of um, I find really fascinating with the people I talk to are the transitions in their career. Cause they, and you, you know, you kind of mapped this out. People tend to go from nothing to something and then kind of back down to nothing again. And yeah. I don't mean to imply nothing means that you aren't valuable or whatever. I just, you know, that's just kind of how it worked. How, how did your life change? What was the most noticeable change or the most impactful change in your life when things started to get big and then when they started to go back down? How did you notice it? Well, it's they had the same seeds. We always felt that uh, my partner Jim Keller and I were completely opposite, but we had a spark and we felt we were different. We weren't trying to be better. We were just trying to be unique or we weren't even trying. We just did the stuff, and we found it was unique. We lived in San Francisco at the time, which was a lot of big fish and small pond. People thought they were important, and no one in the big world cared about them. But there was all ego and everything. And then people from Southern California came in and go, well, these guys are original. You guys have cool haircuts, but you're all boring. Uh So we got signed out of there, and we felt 
It was because original, and we had a first album, mm-hmm. and we had a cheap date. Angels say no, and it's extremely sparse. It doesn't sound like a band. That's popular because it's so simple. And we go, no, it's not because it's so simple. It's because it's us. We're so we're going to do the opposite. And so when we had Jenny, we didn't do a follow-up to Jenny. We went out to do the opposite, believing that we had a, a feeling and a sound that you would know it was us when we do the opposite, that we would have a longer career if we didn't follow up our songs but tried to broaden ourselves. And in doing so, after our big hit, we went in and spent two years making a concept album. Mm. And the whole industry changed. Our company got, all the creative people got fired at CBS and were taken over by these idiot lawyers. And they didn't know what yeah. they were doing. And okay. We came out with this third album that about 20 people owned. Yeah. I was going to say, that's really hard to find. It's not on, did it ever even come out on CD? None of our albums are on CD. Well, well, a couple of them are at least on iTunes. Those first two and stuff are on iTunes. So bizarre. Our albums are, if you mind telling me, two on CD, they're from Collectibles, that little company out of Philadelphia. I don't know. I must have pissed somebody off. I know that it's easy to do that there, but... So so that third album... We bombed out of there thinking we were great, and um, my partner and I... Couldn't see eye to eye, and we went down. But it, you know, we were we had an interview a couple of years ago on NPR, and Jimmy, Jimmy said something that really made me sit up and think. And he goes, "That's the way it's supposed to be. It's actually greater that we went up there and then crash and burn. That makes it more classic. It's harder yeah. to deal with it when you're inside of it, but yeah, what we did was classic, and we didn't." crash and burn because we were on dope or anything. We just crashed yeah. and burned because we were, didn't know what we were doing, but yeah, CBS, blessed, the best thing they did was realize that they had no idea why we were good, but that we were good. So they left us alone. Yeah. We got, we are the masters of our own destiny. We went and made a record that was the opposite of the previous one, but yeah. For better or worse, it has some good songs on it. It's overproduced, but got good That's songs on it. It's ambitious. There's a national emotion.
I think that's and then after that, we split up, and I just wandered off into the night, going, "What the hell happened?" Yeah, I could. What a what a wave that must have been to ride, to have one of the biggest hits ever, and then kind of disappear like that. You know, I was curious when I listened back to those first couple of albums, and you've probably heard this before. They remind me a lot of Tom Petty at the time, who we just lost, obviously. But that yeah. sort of. Um, you know, it's what's essentially kind of a, a rock or a pub rock sound, but kind of colored with new wave techniques and, you know, sound and production and stuff like that. He had to have been a peer of yours, I'm guessing, at the time, or someone like Greg Kinn, who would have even, you know, been nearby there in the Bay Area. Yes, he was very um, popular there. I just played a gig with him the other day, and, you know, he was at... And they were an actual new wave band. We just happened to be there at new okay. wave times. But when you listen to them, and I go back and listen to them, when I watch them play, they were a new wave band. Mm. We were just there at the new wave time, put on a couple of skinny ties, and pretended well, we were just <laughs> us, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So when you say you walked off into the night, what did you do, really? I mean, what's that like when when you wake up that next morning and you realize? I can't make a living as a musician anymore. I have to go do something else. How does that feel? And what did you decide to do? Well, I I have a few personality defects. And one of them is trying to uh, just kind of let things go by. Um, I went back to a little home. Town I lived in Mendocino and split off with my partner and he handled all. I was hit, led the band on stage and he led he did all the business and unfortunately we quit communicating in the studio but I didn't know how to do any of that stuff I don't know how to I wrote a, some great songs in '85 and '86 but no one's ever heard of them because I don't know yeah. I don't know how to toot my own horn so meanwhile I have all my other interests my kind of nerdy kind of stuff that I'm interested in. Which There's is what? Two other interests. I'm a rock and roll singer and songwriter. Uh-huh. I'm a kind of amateur scientist, and I'm thinking I'm a country western songwriter and a soul <laughs> singer. And I try to do a little of each and muddle around, but really, without a the proper partner, I'm hopeless. Uh-huh. So I'm, I lost it because I split up with him and... Yeah. Um, what did he go on to do? Anything? I don't mean that negatively. I, I just don't know. No, he well. quit too for a while and he's lately he's put out a couple of records and he was always a New York kind of guy and I was kind of the Midwest guy and Okay. He's doing pretty well. I have some interesting songs from Okay. We're fr- we're friends again finally, so that's nice. Good. Okay. We just laugh okay. about it and it's funny my astrologer <laughs> at the time told me if I would have gone on to be successful, I would have turned into Hitler. <laughs> Whoa. Are you ready for that? Because inside this kind of nerdy kind of guy, I'm secretly trying to rule the world. <laughs> so well, I, 
I had to go back and relearn these lessons, and here I am, and I'm 70 fucking years old. Yeah. I think I've learned them all. Yeah. I'm still alive. Just buried my dad in 99, so maybe I... Maybe I have a few more years here. Yeah, you might have 30 more years. I'm really on a roll. I sing... My singing just about five years ago just got about 20 times better. I don't know. Yeah, how did that... I was listening to the Little Black Book song, and you're... I mean, I call it more of a growl. To me, you just have this, like, trademark growl. No one sings like you. But it sounds just the same. How do you you account for that? You haven't lost a step. I don't know. I... I literally just get up and go to my job and don't practice. And I go to a gig or sing with friends and I go, shit, I'm twice as good as I was two weeks ago. <laughs> I'm not, I'm like I say, I'm a shy comedian, but I'm not tooting my own horn. I yeah. really am getting better at an incredible pace. And it has to do with, I, well, I moved a lot of the keys down, like uh, on my new record or songs I write in B minor, I'm singing F sharp minor, so I can sing down here. Uh-huh. You know, it dawned on me, you know, in the 90s when I was trying to, I had a band I was trying to bring back, um, not 90s, but the 80s, like 87, 88. Sure. And every, all the kids I was playing with could sing like David Bowie, and I'm going, wait a minute, I sang bass in the choir when I was a kid. Why am I singing way up here going, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> because I didn't know how to project. But a long a long period of listening to the great guys that were half singing, half talking, like uh-huh. Brooke Benton or somebody, mm. our yeah. country singer, then they go, hey, baby. And finally starting to play, uh, acoustic had a big thing to do with it. I had never played solo except I used to play piano i play a bad jerry lee lewis kind of country piano and uh that's the only solo i ever did so i started playing solo and turned into a storyteller and now i started like the story started entering the song and so i'm singing a lot of the song in my talking voice Mm -hmm. because I hated my talking voice. I thought I was a pretty good singer, but when I hear myself talking, I go, oh, that's disgusting. <laughs> but now when I hear myself talking, I go, boy, I have a great, interesting talking voice. You definitely do. And <laughs> I could, like, I'm thinking of, like, doing audio books and stuff. Yeah, you should. My wife thinks I have one of the greatest talking voices ever, which is almost rewarding to more rewarding to me than having a great singing voice. So. It's having a wife that thinks you have a good... No, actually you. having the voice. I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's funny. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> right. uh, okay. But okay. having this is rewarding to me because, I mean, I grew up in a family of... I, I was the quietest member, and everyone could talk their asses off and argue and scream, and I was very quiet and maybe throw in a joke every once in a while, but... I didn't talk very much at all. When we were when I started playing on stage, I was the wimpiest guy there and we went on stage and I took over. Huh. And I just found a force when I was a singer that I could dominate but I still didn't know how to like tell a story. Yeah. But now I'm just like try and stop me. I just haven't done the things I need to do to be self promoting, so yeah. 
I'm not famous, but I am famous. So it's, it's right. Has anyone ever been where I am? I don't know, but well, I talk to a lot of people, and they're in. Um, there's a lot of common themes. I I don't know that anyone. I will tell you, no one has expressed how it feels to be where you are, like you have, as or as well as you have. Um, I um, I do think that's really fascinating. You sound very self-aware, which a lot of people I talk to aren't that self-aware, and they're sort of the they're the funny ones, honestly. You know. Yeah. Because um, it's over, or you know, they think they still got it, but they kind of don't. You know, or I don't know, whatever it is. I love them all, but <laughs> anyway. Okay. Well, tell me some stories. I mean. You know, you've been at this for 40 years. Did you ever get to, you know, open for any heroes or meet anybody or write a song with someone you really like? Or what are just some of the craziest, funnest, tastiest memories you have? Well, I tell you, going down to Los Angeles, which being from San Francisco area, we always put it down, Hmm. was such a pleasure for me to find people who were, I was faking it completely. I'm not. I wasn't really a musician at the time. I only learned to play guitar to my own satisfaction about five years ago. I can't even tune a guitar, wow. but uh, I'm an artist, so I can like take whatever tools I have and create out of it. And it's like when I had my own band, uh, building my own PA, and doing everything. It was always a day late and dollar short, but that would create this tension and I would convert that into this really great, I mean, when I was uh, playing in Mendocino in the 70s, we made time stop. But I was like sweating my ass off and then, you know, smoked a lot of pot at the time, that might help, but I knew that I'd know this place that we could exist. But most people don't even know it exists and I could take people there it's like uh, group sex almost. I can tap into the big dance and take it to this other level. And so I started, I went, when we got on big stage, I went from playing a little bar in Ukiah, California to Red Rocks. Uh, still couldn't really play, but I could feel this energy out there and tap into it. And create it's kind of a feedback thing. I got to have the people working with me. Yeah. And I found that I could do this magic, and it was really great. So that was really exciting for me. Uh-huh. And I tried to tap into my partner; had no idea what was happening. Right. Um, and it was many years before I could find musicians who understand that. I mean, jazz musicians understand it, or maybe uh, I think those fusion guys did. Where it's just create this thing out there, and that's I'm a very psychic guy. Um, you know, I look like this, like real regular computer nerd, but I'm actually living way out on the edge. Really? And I tune into this stuff, and this is going to sound like I'm some wacky guy, but to do that is the greatest thing that I ever felt. I mean, I was playing Bean Blossom in Indiana for 23,000 people. and We didn't even have a very good band. I think it was a ba- all I could hear was the bass and the kick drum and my voice. And I still could create a mood. It's like a hypnotic thing. 
that I do to myself when I'm singing, and I found I could do that, and I go, this is my mission, but I just was never able to do it. Some people could take that. I think someone like Sting or something, they understand that. They could take that and do it consistently for 30,000 people night after night. I found that area, and I know it exists, but unfortunately I don't know how to get the get the situation where I can make it happen consistently. But that really made me feel special. It made me feel like I was, I always thought I was just some kind of nerd or something. But that made me feel very special. And, um, so I got a lot of encouragement from, we were very lucky in that, uh, you know, music was very clicky where we came from, and we just like, forget it. We're not going for that shit. And we went down, I started to tell you, I'm, I talk around in circles. I have That's okay. five retrograde planets in Pluto. So when you ask me a question, I'm going to circle the wagons for a while. And then I went down there, and there were just, I remember I was, <coughs> what's that guy's name, Dan? He's like a triple-scale guitar player. He's playing on Steely Dan records and <coughs> everything. And I'm hiring him to play this part, and he goes, i tell you what, I'm going to teach you to play it because nobody can do it like you. And so here's this guy with no ego at all, one of the greatest players in the world, teaching me to play this part. Oh, uh, and that just tickled me so much. Yeah. Because I had been dealing with these egomaniacs in San Francisco that drove me crazy. So that was a nice thing. I don't know, just to be there and the magic of uh, we were cool for a while. And Yeah. You mentioned playing Red Rocks. I live in Denver. Who did? When did you play and who did you play with? I played with Tom Petty. That was my first big show. Oh, really? Uh, oh, interesting. This was long for Jenny, 1980. Okay. And then he sent his roadie up to to the bar in Ukiah where I lived. And before I know it, we were there. And literally, it was just like we, Jim and I, my guitar player partner and I, we had no idea how to play big rock. Yeah. We could see the big rock, but we played like little <laughs> new wave shit. <laughs> you know, it's hard to do new wave and rock. I mean, the Romantics yeah. and bands like that can do it. In fact, the Romantics the only ones I can know do it. Although Greg can do it and play big but still be new wave. Yeah, um, true. Okay. In excess, maybe. So anyway, that was nice, and to suddenly yeah. be taken seriously. My unfortunately, I was so shy, and I was my partner was so glib that he ended up running all our recording sessions. We made the, I think we made the dumbest records ever. There's really? just so many stupid songs on there. Oh, they're great. I mean, I can only speak for the first two. I think it's just as, I mean, it's up there with, you know, Huey Lewis and the News and Greg Kinn and all those other bands. Huey Lewis, they're like a professional band. They go out and really do this. We play with yeah, them. We sound like we're a bunch of nerds, although we're more original. <laughs> It's just uh, professional. They're professionals. We're, yeah, they are. We're not really professionals. We're. I don't know about that. We're punks. Well, maybe. And, but, uh, but without the kind of typical punk attitude, we had an attitude where, I mean, I was faking the whole thing because we're reaching for art, you know. But that was all nice. I was just thinking about, we used to play in a little bar called Uncle Charlie's in Marin County with Huey and us and... 
Those were good times. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So we, it's okay. funny, when we went out in the Midwest from San Francisco, nobody knew where to classify us. I remember I was on tour with the Neck, and I go, these guys aren't going to make it. Mm-hmm. I know they're really popular, but we play, to test a band in the 80s, you play in Cleveland and Akron. Yeah. Cleveland's a rock and roll town, and Akron's a new wave town. In Akron, they thought they were putting on airs, and in Cleveland, they thought they were putting on airs. And yeah. Cleveland and Akron both loved us, and the Nag were much more popular. They hated them. They go, well, they're just, they're going to sell records, but they can't play concerts. Yeah. So I can play here for the people in the Midwest. But we, yeah. the funny thing, we go, what was so good, interesting for me, was to play out there, and you see MTV was being made in New York and L.A., but it didn't show there. Right. So they're making this medium. They really don't know what it is. But I'm in the Midwest experiencing it just hit. People are asking my autograph in Topeka, Kansas. Right. Me, you know, just yeah. from being on a, there. And just to be there when all that happened was really great. And they're very lucky for us, I guess. Good. Yeah, definitely. And okay, I appreciate well, the... the the luck of it all. Sure. Well, I think, I mean, you know, some people have one-hit wonders that don't stand the test of time, you know, but yours obviously has. It's ubiquitous still today. I want to know, last question. Did you ever meet a hero? Who? Tell me an interesting story about somebody you met who maybe it was a good meeting, maybe it was a bad one. But tell me an interesting story about somebody like that. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. Well, Chuck Blocken was producing my record, you know, and he's Bruce Springsteen's mixer, so he brought me out to New Jersey, and I says to Bruce, you know, racing to see, I had to eliminate a third of our songs when we got signed up. There would be either two like him or two like them. See, when I got signed, I had a... 78, I had a horn section and a pedal steel guitar, and we played all this shit. We wrote car songs and everything. Right. And then people go, ah, he's imitating people that I'd never heard of. Yeah. And so I go, you know, in racing in the street, he goes, I got a 69 Chevy with a 396 Fuley heads, four on the floor. I said, you know, Bruce, Fuley heads only go on a 327. <laughs> Because I wouldn't know that. I'm faking that whole thing. I don't know anything about cars. I love cars, but I don't know anything. He said he, that. Yeah, and then he started. He told me. He commented on every song of my first album. Told me how much he enjoyed this and what he enjoyed about that. And that really was touching. He was such a nice yes. guy. Good. Oh, that's great. That's a perfect story. Yeah. Well, thanks for talking to me, Tommy. This was great. I hope you're you enjoyed it. I get the feeling you don't love doing these kinds of things but i hope you're okay with this because it meant a lot to me and so well, anyway, i use I'm grateful sorry i i must confess i use interviewers as free psychiatrists so <laughs> that's smart actually i would too if anyone cared a bit about me yeah they care about you i need to interview you sometime <laughs> yeah you should i'll return i'll return the favor okay yeah do. that'd be great there you have it tommy heath tommy two-tone Hope you enjoyed that. He's quite a character, wouldn't you say? So that's it, guys. That's the story of the song. We had the writer and the singer. I wanted to close it out with 
You know, that third album of theirs that was the follow-up to the one with 8675309 was pretty much completely ignored. And it's But it's good. It's called National Emotion. And this song right here, Get Around Girl, had, was a single. It had a video and everything. It just didn't go anywhere. So uh, it's really hard to find. If you're collecting vinyl, maybe you can find it. But anyway, uh, it's good. It's worth your time. So thank you, Alex and Tommy. Now, a teaser for next week. We are going to be talking to a seven-time Grammy Award-winning producer. He's not a household name. Uh, you probably don't know the name unless you listen to other podcasts, because he was on another one recently. Um, has a very big, diverse career. The podcast I heard him on recently focused on his hard rock and heavy metal side. I thought I would focus on his alternative side, since that's more my comfort zone. So that's <laughs> big personality. So that's that's coming up next week. Uh, huge thanks, as always, to Yan the Man Makevich. Thank you, buddy, for everything that you do. Guys, as I've mentioned, find us on Facebook, like our page. You can send me a message on there if you want. You can email us at thehustlepod at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. Uh, we come out every Tuesday with new episodes. If you have not done so yet, please go in and write us a review. If you're new to the show, this is what we do. We talk about the emotional, psychological, and financial impact of brief rock stardom. How does that affect people, and how do they feel about it in retrospect? That's what we do here. Thank you, everybody. We'll talk to you next Tuesday.